0: You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. So we're addressing tonight anti-Semitism. Why do they love to hate us so much? And this is being discussed, of course, in the backdrop of we're now a month after October 7th. And we have seen the eruption of a level of anti-Israel fervor and anti-Jewish fervor that has not been seen before and when there were previous outbreaks uh Gaza in 2014 and 2020 we know there was a rise in anti-Semitism but what we're seeing in the world today is unparalleled and so the demonstrations of all the major cities in Europe uh a hundred Columbia professors at Columbia University who signed off that October 7th was justified, and uh, in some cases, just simply all-out virulent anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews, gas them again, uh, these kind of things, which are the extreme ones. And most of it, and this is what is so tricky and in some ways so pernicious, most of it is veiled as anti-Israelism. And I'm not going to go into a deep discussion about this, but one cannot help feel that the bias, whether it's in the media, whether it's in the general population outside of Israel, that the bias has deeper roots than simply stating people's positions about Israel. Uh, For example, the tragedy of the loss of bystanders' lives, which is a tragedy and which happens in war and which is happening in Gaza right now, it is. Although we know Hamas is keeping human shields, uh, which is a war crime. But one cannot help wonder how between 2011 and 2019, in the Syrian civil war, when 380,000 people were killed half of them civilians at least, 5.6 million refugees, where were the demonstrations all over the capitals of the world? Where was the calling out to protect Arab lives and Palestinian lives? Thousands of Palestinians died in that civil war. And so one cannot help wonder why there's such a reaction to Israel's justified war And there was not a reaction then. Or the double standard placed upon Israel that most of the Western countries, when America was fighting ISIS, there were civilian casualties. It was part of war. There was even carpet bombing in in Afghanistan. And yet Israel is always held to a double standard. And so one cannot help wonder why there is a double standard and why there's such an outcry for Israel. But not for other loss of life. And so the arrows all point to something about us, to something about the Jews, to something about the fact that is a Jewish nation. And uh, one other note I want to say about anti-Semitism. I do not believe in demonstrating against anti-Semitism. You can't Ask someone to not hate you. You can't demonstrate that they shouldn't hate you. I believe we should be proud Jews. We should support Israel. We should do what we need to do in our Jewish lives. And certainly it's important to make it public because that affects public opinion. And this is also how anti-Semitism affects us in Israel. Because if it affects public opinion, then it affects foreign governments policies And that will affect Israel when our allies' policies are impacted um, by public opinion. So we do need to raise our public opinion for Israel. We do need to call out anti-Semitism uh, as a crime. But demonstrating against anti-Semitism, to me, there seems something off about that. Um, Maybe I can't quite put my finger on it. But um, but we do have this enigma of history. And this enigma of history, uh, some people liken it to a virus which morphs into all different forms. Anti-Semitism started in the ancient world, in the Egyptian world, in the Greek world. The Greeks said we were lazy because we didn't work on the Shabbat. The Greeks um, made fun of us because of we didn't... Have such an emphasis on beauty and the aesthetic. And um, and then, of course, it morphed into uh, the history of Christianity and Islam, the last 2,000 years, which we will talk about more in depth. And then modern anti-Semitism with fascism. And whether it's in totalitarianism, the Soviet Union, uh, the Nazi, Nazism, And even in China and Japan, where there are no Jews, there are phenomenons of anti-Semitism. So how do we understand this? How do we understand this enigma? Right. To the progressives, those on the left, we're exploiting capitalists and Jewish money is controlling Congress. To those on the right, we are leftist globalists. We are weak and subhuman. And at the same time, we control the world. So we see that there's something very irrational, very paradoxical. And how do we get it? How do we get a deeper eye into this? How do we start to understand it? So we're going to go through different approaches, different understandings, different manifestations of it. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive. We're not looking for the answer to anti-Semitism. Although at the end uh, we will bring up some points which have much more of a global, uh, universal in, a, in impact or uh, um, implications. So we will talk about that. But you know the classic anti-Semitism. We don't certainly. I don't realize it being brought up in the United States. Um, I did not feel it much growing up in New York, which New York might be understandable. So, uh, but what I can say is that my father, who worked in advertising in the 1950s, was not able to get a job as a Jew on Madison Avenue. And that's not so long ago. And um, so just think about that, let alone uh, my mother and grandparents who fled from the Nazis and barely escaped. But um, but even in America, it wasn't so long ago that Jews were excluded from large swaths of professions, uh, access, universities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so what are the different understandings? What are the different approaches? So we're going to start with understanding anti-Semitism as uh, as being a manifestation of xenophobia. Xenophobia is fear and hatred of the other. And as Jews, we have always traditionally been different. We had different theology, a different religion, uh, different customs. And we often were at counterheads to the prevailing culture. As I mentioned before, for the Greeks, for the Romans, for Christianity, uh, Abraham, Abraham Haivri, the rabbis say, Ivri comes from Ever, that he came from the other side of the river. So because we were different, we were often hated. And this is uh, not unusual. Anthropologists point out that the early humanity survived by banding in groups and having loyalty to their group and uh, antagonism to the other or wariness and uh, needing to protect themselves from the other. So it's quite understandable. However, as, Hello. as as modern people, um understanding that we need to accept and respect everyone. And in Judaism, in the Torah, it says, be kind to the stranger because you were strangers, this doesn't make it acceptable. And Jews have often been, as uh, Ronnie Rani says, points out here, the scapegoat, right? We were the other that then got blamed. Blamed for what? Blamed for everything. Um, you know uh, often the way to galvanize your people is to react against a common enemy and by the way we see this in Israel today unfortunately that all the disunity melted away the minute we were attacked so often it's convenient to find uh, someone who is a threat to you someone who's a danger to you and so more often than not, it would be some the ones that you see that are around you. We also forget that in medieval Europe and uh, much of a- Arabia or Islam, we were the only other religion. So that also put the focus on a put the lens on Jews. And um, and also we know that Jews were often the the target of conspiracy theories, right? So with the xenophobia, with the danger, comes uh, a mythical formulation of the Jew. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is the most modern iteration of it, which was uh, written in the end of Tsarist Russia, how Jews have a global network that controls all, And by the way, we're going to see that um, it's not that there are no kernels of truth. As Jews, we had a common bond uh, with all other Jewish communities. And in the late Middle Ages, Jews played a central role in the facilitating of commerce and merchants across Europe and across the civilized world. Uh, We had a common language of Hebrew. We had a degree of trust. And... um, we had a even a system of law governing our own community. So while that was there, of course, then it is becomes inflated and becomes um, an entire conspiracy, and uh, a and we're going to have to talk about why Jews are so often that yeah. target of that uh, fantasy of whatever it is the enemy, the conspiracy theory, um, we'll get back to that. Another manifestation of xenophobia and Jew is the other devolved into racial theory, that Jews are different racially, and by the way, which we are, uh, our DNA, at least in Europe, was closer to the Middle East. Um, For in Islamic countries, we were not that different racially, actually. Um, But racial theory often devolved into dehumanizing the Jew. And racial theory really started in medieval Spain uh, when there were forced conversions of Jews to Christianity. The church, would the, the populace would not allow Jews, would not intermarry with Jews, even though we'd converted. And they were called conversos or new Christians. And in the justification given, they said was that they wanted to keep the lingua sangua, the bloodline of the Christian families. They didn't want the Jewish bloodlines to be mixed in. And some historians identified that as the beginning of racial antisemitism. It, it exploded in the 19th century when eugenics and racial theory became a pseudo scientific exploit. And of course, we know culminating in Nazi Germany Uh, with the Jew being dehumanized and being subhuman. So these are all aspects of the xenophobia, of Jews being different, and because of that, a hatred of us and a fear of us, um, which, as I mentioned before, sometimes brings uh irrational, paradoxical accusations of being inhuman and superhuman, of being leeching off the rich and being too rich. So that's our first approach. The second one um, overlaps with that, are economic causes and jealousy. And the whole theme of Jews and money, of course, is a big one. And let me first point out that we were originally farmers and shepherds when we lived on our land until the Romans kicked us out, until the Romans brought us into exile. And in the Middle Ages, let's take um, Christian Europe, uh, Jews were not allowed to own land. Jews were not allowed to own the guilds and to become craftsmen. So really what was left was for us to become merchants. Now, it's also the fact that we were literate uh, to very high percentages, completely beyond anything in the non-Jewish world. Remember, the Dark Ages were dark, fire. Uh, partially because of the lack of literacy and learning and education. And mm-hmm. we have always valued education. And part of our education of studying Talmud is a legal system. And part of that legal studies uh, rotates around uh, financial issues and civil law issues. In fact, in the Dafyomi, in the Pager Day of Talmud study, we just started uh, Zikim. the whole section on damages, almost a third of the Talmud. So it's areas that every Jew was thinking about, was was studying. Furthermore, uh, Jews were pushed into these positions in the Middle Ages that were particularly uh, the people who you don't like, is uh, the tax collector and the money lender, right? The IRS and the credit card that's calling you uh, for your most uh up-to-date payment and this was because uh the ta- money lenders uh paradoxically enough biblical law says we're not allowed to lend money on interest this is in jewish law and this is in christian law as well but it says to your brother so jews are allowed to lend money to non-jews on interest and non-jews are allowed to take out loans and pay interest to jews but not to non-jews uh, by the way, Islam also does not allow um, interest, and in Islam and Judaism, there are legal structures of how to how to generate income, often structured as a partnership instead of a loan. But uh, but so Jews became the money lenders of medieval Europe, and as I said before, there's no no one you don't you 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 love to hate more than your money lender. Uh, that was calling you to get his payments. So tax collectors also, since Jews were highly literate uh, in the empire of Charlemagne, a French emperor in the 10th century who conquered much of Europe, uh, Jews were recruited, one, because we were educated and could keep the books, two, because if you are a king running a country, any government, uh, if you hire tax collectors from your own population, they're going to much likely, be much more likely to give breaks to their friends. You bring in someone from the outside and you have a much better chance of someone sticking to the letter of the law. So we were thrust into these positions and uh, did not help um, our popularity. And Um, where exactly the stereotype of the cheap Jew comes from uh, I can't say exactly Um, you know uh, when we were talking before Jews as leftists, Jews as globalists Jews as uh, capitalists every group is going to have every orientation right I don't know if we can say that Jews are more oriented one way or another and every people will have peoples who are frugal And maybe because we are always so destitute, we have to make sure that we didn't waste money. So whatever it is, we know the the stereotype and to the point of uh, Merchant of Venice, Shylock being the main character around Shakespeare's play, painting him as this um, uh, greedy businessman who wants his pound of flesh. So. That's Jews and money, um, and the economic factors which lent themselves to anti-Semitism. And here comes another factor, which is also jealousy. Because we are often successful, and that's for another discussion, is it because of our tradition of education? Is it because of our uh, strong family structure? However you want to view it, is it because of our non-fatalistic outlook on the world? However you want to view it, uh, Jews often rise up to the higher echelons of a society in terms of wealth. And uh, let's take, for example, uh, 19th century Germany. When the emancipation happened, Jews were let out of the ghetto. What happens is Jews flooded into the universities, flooded into the professions, and in a sense, leapfrogged above the German bourgeoisie and middle class. And so here were your Germans who uh, saw these Jews who had been hated, who had been kept in a ghetto, who had been persecuted for a thousand years. And all of a sudden, they're their lawyers, doctors, financiers. So you can imagine that the animosity that created. And by the way, African American uh, anti-Semitism which reared itself again. It was there in the 1990s. It disappeared. Now, in the 2010s, it reared itself again. Uh, Often can be viewed from this lens as well. And, you know, it used to be no Jews, blacks, or dogs, uh, signs on hotels. And then after the war, Jews started to integrate into areas of American society they hadn't. And granted, we didn't have the uh, skin color recognition that, to hold us back. Uh, sometimes it was a name which could be changed, um, and so the African American community also saw that. Now we know Jews were were strong backers of the civil rights movement and of uh, integration in whether it was in baseball or whether in sports or whether it was in the arts, but nevertheless. I think there's a factor there that Jews were able to move forward and and that community wasn't. So this is often also a source of anti-Semitism, of hatred for the Jew. So we have xenophobia, we have economic causes and jealousy. The third area where we're going to look at is religious anti-Semitism. And we're going to look particularly at Christianity and Islam, our two, spin-off religions and we're going to see that in their spin-off was built-in anti-semitism. So let's take Christianity first. Uh, Very early in the history of the church, uh, the uh, charge of deicide, that Jews are the ones who killed uh, Christianity's uh, son of God and Christianity's savior, uh, messiah and um with the deification of jesus came the charge of deicide this was formalized in the council of nicaea in 325 and throughout history until vatican II, until 1964 jews were and, and here's the paradox um, jesus actually was not killed by jews he was killed by the romans did Jews have a part in that? Perhaps we did, but what does that have to do with Jews living today? And uh, tell you this story: a friend of mine who was at a dinner party, and there was a minister there. And she, uh, he says to her, uh, and it's interesting because she's blonde and blue-eyed, doesn't look Jewish, but he knew she was Jewish. And if uh, one can talk about a Jewish look, we can get to that in a second. Uh, there is not a Jewish look. If you live in Israel, Jews are white, brown, black, uh, and every color. But, um, but he said to her, how do you feel about the fact that you killed our Lord, JC? And she, who was very good on her feet, I don't come back with quibs like this. She said, yeah, maybe it's a shame that there was a Jew who died 2000 years ago. How do you feel about the church? Being responsible for the death of tens of millions of Jews, and of course he had no answer to that. So, in addition to the deicide charge, was the um, theology of what's called replacement theology. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, framed it this way: You see, Christianity was supposed to be the new covenant. They, be- the Catholic Church, believes in the Old Testament but they believe that it was superseded because in Jeremiah, it talks about a new covenant. So they believe they are in the new covenant. If they are the new and improved product, why don't all the old customers flock to them if it's new and improved? So at the beginning, they thought we would, but we didn't. So they came up with an explanation. God keeps the Jews around, but he keeps us around downtrodden, and wandering, and uprooted, and with a curse, to show that we have been rejected by God, that that those who adhere to the old covenant are now rejected. So as you can understand, it's kind of what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Jews are around to be downtrodden, so they made sure that their policies oppressed us, And um, simple ones like Jews cannot hire a non-Jewish person in their home to, as we know, uh, Jews being attacked, second-class citizens, exploited by the kings, um, you name it. So we've always been a thorn inside of the church, and that's why they certainly, the Catholic Church, many others, couldn't countenance when the state of Israel was born, and um, to this day, Uh, There are evangelicals who are very pro-Israel, and there are lots of uh, progressive Protestants who are very anti-Israel, Catholics who are anti-Israel. You have the whole spectrum. So Christianity, uh, with great tragedy, really the the history of Christianity from its beginnings to 1964 and unfortunately even afterwards, were a, a parade, a litany. Of Jews being kicked out from every Western country, of crusades that <laughs> of every blood libel accusations. Yeah. Um as late as upstate New York in the 1920s. Or um there was a uh city councilman in New York in the 2017 who accused Jews of and uh, in Chicago of some weird blood poisoning. Thing of Jews, Jewish doctors of uh, uh, planting AIDS in minorities and crazy things like this. So, and by the way, um, uh, the Palestinian Authority also came out with accusations of Jews and babies, and um, so it's one that didn't die easily, and so. Unfortunately, there's been a long history of persecution. I believe the church has reformed itself, has made efforts, but that doesn't mean there isn't still residual anti-Semitism. I've had people tell me that up until today, uh, for my cousin Boston says that uh, he's been told that in the Catholic Sunday schools they still teach the day, they still mention deicide and the guilt of the Jews, even if. Uh, It's supposed to be against Catholic theology to teach it anymore. So that's the unfortunate history of uh, long history, and there are many who point out that uh, the Holocaust and the Nazi extermination of Jews could not have taken place if it was not built upon 2,000 years of Christian anti-Semitism, because without the help of the local populations, um, as Eric Goldhagen showed in his Hitler's Willing Executioners, without their help, um, they could not have exec- executed six million Jews. So now we turn to Islamic anti Semitism. And this, of course, is very uh, relevant to what's going on in Israel, to the Gaza War. Um, and I will give you the quote that um, comes directly from the Hamas Charter in 2006. And this is a quote from the, uh, this isn't from the Quran, This is from the, I think they're called the Hadibs, uh, from the other teachings, but it's quoted by Hamas. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews. When the Jew will hide behind stones and trees, these stones and trees will say, "Oh Muslims, Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him." And in 2017, they took this out of their charter, but we see that that doesn't mean they still don't believe it and practice it. And this is from Sahih Muslim, forty-one six nine eight five. Now. There are many other quotes, unfortunately, from Islamic teachings and from the Quran, which compares Jews to dogs and monkeys uh, very early in the Quran. Um, the precedent, tragically, goes to the very beginning of Islam. And one can understand it in light of the fact that really the Quran is a rewriting of the Torah. And really, Muhammad positioned himself as a modern day prophet in Judaism we believe prophecy ended 2500 years ago but he said he was the new prophet he came out with the new torah the quran which rewrote the old testament and included new teachings and he preached to jews and when jews did not receive his preachings some of the local tribes in medina he killed an entire tribe massacred hundreds and the figure is anywhere around six to eight hundred Jews Jewish men were taken, were slaughtered, and their heads cut off. So we see where it comes from, unfortunately. And I do give a give a disclaimer, not this doesn't mean all Muslims uh follow these teachings, act on these teachings, but it is in their teachings. Okay. Um and uh after that and the women were t- and the children were taken captives and don't want to talk about that it's too uh heart wrenching to think about and talk about too specifically so other quotes you'll find them to be the greediest of mankind um eventually what happened after a few of these massacres of jews is that mohammed instituted something called dhimmi where Jews could be second class citizens, they would have to pay a special tax. In many countries, they would if a Jew was walking down the sidewalk, and there was a Muslim, they would have to walk into the gutter. Uh, Jews could not have to dress differently. And there was an institutionalization of Jews becoming second class citizens. So the anti-Semitism, Islam and Christianity, was a source of persecution for Jews. Unless we think, now, maybe it was a little better at times in Muslim countries, but even in the Golden Age of Spain, from about the year uh, 1000 to 1300, uh, in Granada, when Shmuel Hanagid, who uh, was the finance minister and the general of the city-state, died, there were riots and Jews were killed. In Toledo, at the height of the golden age of Spain, there were riots and Jews were massacred. So even in the the positive, more tolerant times, the best of times was not great. Okay. The next category. So we've had xenophobia. We've had uh, Jews' economic causes for antisemitism. We've had theological causes for antisemitism. Um, And here I will give you the um, handouts, so you can look at them, at these categories here. So the next category that we're going to look at is Jewish exceptionalism. And this is much more complicated and much trickier. if you look in the Torah before the people received the Torah at Mount Sinai, before the Jewish people received the Torah, God said, if you will follow my Torah and take this special path and enter this covenant, then you will be a special people. And that specialness was a special role to be a kingdom of God representatives, I don't like to use the word priests, the word is kohanim, and a holy nation. Our role was to bring godliness to the world. It doesn't mean we believe we are inherently better. It means we believe we have a unique mission. We believe we have a Torah which can elevate us if we live it properly. But it could be that given the responsibility we have with the Torah, We don't know whether we live up to that more than a non-Jewish person who doesn't have that responsibility. So it's not a question of who's better, but it's a question of our belief in our special role. But that's often been misinterpreted as thinking we're better. But this now leads us into the next uh, part of this theme, which is that because we carry this message and because we aspire to this, often we were hated for it. And Hitler in Mein Kampf, may his name be blotted out, uh, said that the Jew has brought the world two scourges. We brought the world circumcision and we brought the world a conscience. And what he was really saying is really that he hated us because we brought a moral message that every human being is created in the image of God, that life is sacred, and that the weak are to be protected, as well as the strong. And of course, his campaign and his message, and and then such people's uh, philosophy of life is might makes right. If you're stronger, then you win. And this was attributed to Nietzsche's ubermensch, Superman. Um, I wouldn't go dir- as to directly blame Nietzsche for Nazism, but one can see how it came out of his philosophy. So there is an animosity towards us because we bring this moral message to the world. And maybe that's the reason for the double standard. We do try to hold ourselves to a, a higher standard. And some people believe if we don't live up to that, the non-Jews resent us for that. I don't know if that's the case, but the rabbis already said that Mount Sinai, Sinai is related to the word sinah, which means hatred. And they say it was called Mount Sinai because sinah, hatred, emanated from that mountain. Hatred towards us because we received the Torah and we brought it to humanity. And Judeo-Christian values have permeated the Western world. But at the same time, there are those who argue that the Western world has a degree of savagery that has not been purged and that wants to come out and that resents us because we are the me- we are the voice that says it should not come out. So that's one dimension of anti-Semitism. And it's very deep and it's very maybe subconscious. And here's another one, which is, a very interesting idea I've heard recently. This is from a thinker named David Nirenberg, and he wrote Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition. And in it, he builds on what we just said of Jewish exceptionalism. And he said this, he says that the non-Jewish world paints us as that within themselves that they are attracted to and yet try to reject. That we are in a sense a uh, straw man for their own struggles. And the analogy one might say is it's like a homophobe, uh, someone who is uh, openly um, attacking of homosexuals who themselves might have a homosexual attraction. And you hear this that some of these figures who are the most virulent and the most outspoken are caught in same-sex relationships. And it's almost as if they're lashing out to out of self-hatred or out of their own inner struggle. So what Nuremberg says is, uh, Nuremberg uh, says, is that in a sense, we are the straw man. So the Jewish stereotype of greediness and of Uh, capitalist and opportunist and exploiter is really the Western world struggling with its own engagement in capitalism in the modern world. And its own struggle of seeing itself at times use it in ways that are not, that are wrong. So this is how he tries to explain it, that we are in a sense uh, it's not really a scapegoat. It's a straw man. It's a fictional uh, embodiment of that which they themselves uh, are, are struggling with or against or love to hate. So that's another very deep-seated take on why the Jew is always, is so often um, the the target of Uh, These stereotypes and these myths, sometimes even when there are no Jews around, after the Jews were kicked out, and there's still uh, anti-Jewish sentiment. Like in Spain, uh, many were accused of Judaizing, even after the Jews were gone. So that is uh, Jewish exceptionalism. And the last category we're going to talk about is how do we understand anti-Semitism? from a Jewish theology point of view. And in the Torah itself, it talks about antisemitism. It talks about, in the end of Deuteronomy, all the terrible things that are going to happen to us. It also tells us that there is a principle that Esau hates Jacob. And Esau was viewed as the the, um, embodiment of the non-Jew, or the cousin, the brother, the cousin, of later later period of Christianity. And Esau hated his brother Jacob because he superseded him, because he was more fitting to carry on the family mission. And so the rabbis say that in the Haggadah, every Passover, we say in every generation they've risen up to destroy us, but God will save us from their hand. And sure enough, the most persecuted people is also the people that has lasted the longest. Isn't that a paradox? And so within this, we see God's hidden face. We see a paradox of being God's special people, at the same time being the most oppressed people. And we understand that from a theological point of view. Uh, We understand that of perhaps God putting us through this because we've strayed from the covenant. And I'm not saying that we know the reasons for specific events, but in the Torah, it's clear that when we stray away from God, it says we will bear the consequences of that. And sometimes it will be very painful. And um, the land will be desolate, it says in Deuteronomy. You won't be protected. And in a sense, uh, the Torah lays out that sometimes the non jews the agent of God's punishment. And it doesn't mean that that exempts them but we do understand it and the jews reaction to tragedy to suffering is tshuva is to ask uh ourselves how can i come closer to god and uh how can this be an impetus towards me reconnecting with my creator and so there is an internal jewish theology to anti-semitism but once again, that does not excuse the anti semite And I'd like to conclude with a statement of Sinclair Lewis. Sinclair Lewis was the voice of the social conscience of the 19th century. He wrote, spoke out the uh, the urban ghettos, the exploitation of children and workers, and he said this. He said, there's no greater compliment to the Jews then the fact that the degree of their unpopularity is always the measure of the cruelty of the regime under which they live. So, in other words, we are the canary in the mind. We're the ones that show the true nature of a society because the worst of society comes out against us. And he said that as a compliment, perhaps because he's thinking once again about the idea that we represent goodness. and that we, uh, in a sense, try to stand above it. So in this long history of uh, Jewish persecution, what we can say is that today we have our own country to defend ourselves, which hasn't happened for the last over 2,000 years. And so, friends, it's not a question of uh, (coughs) demonstrating against anti-Semitism. It's a question of standing up for being Jewish, of defending ourselves, of feeling proud, but also understanding where it came from can help us to deal with this phenomenon and to protect ourselves against it. So we have the xenophobia. We have the economic causes. We have religious anti-Semitism. We have Jewish exceptionalism, which is resented or sometimes turned back against us or sometimes projected onto us. And we have our internal understanding of the theology of anti Semitism. But whatever way you try to understand it, we see from how irrational it is that something very deep seated that is not easily explained.